If you say to yourself, I think they're actually doing their best, mm-hmm. and, which is often the case, then all of a sudden that creates a little empathy. Well, hello. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Kim Skorupski. You're here on the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm looking at my new friend, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. Dr. Wilner is an associate professor of neurology at UTHSC. That's the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And he has these buttery smooth tones that come with being a podcaster, not me, because he is the host of the podcast, The Art of Medicine, which is in its third year with episodes dropping every other Sunday. And let's just, Andrew, can you just, let's, I said we were going to talk about this later, but can you tell us a little bit about The Art of Medicine podcast so we can have people jump over and download your podcast as well? Sure. Well, that that would be, I'm always happy to talk about my podcast. So I'll give you a little history. About four years ago, I uh, wrote a book called The Locum Life because I used to work as a locum tenens physician, you know, like a substitute teacher, physician here, physician there. And I learned a lot about it. I went to a lot of interesting places. There's a lot of important topics like getting your malpractice and traveling and meeting new people and having the first day at a job. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of first days because you're always going to new places. So I did a, uh, they're up on uh, YouTube. I did a free video for each chapter, a little five minute summary. And then I thought, you know, I want to talk to some other locum tenants doctors. So I started doing that to uh, help promote the book, to make people aware. But then that evolved into a podcast. And I said, well, I want to, you know, we've talked about locums. So let's expand it a little bit. Because there are a lot of things in medicine that are interesting. And there's a lot of people who are, I'd say, unsung heroes who are doing really exciting things in medicine. For example, I've interviewed uh, several physicians who write novels you know, in their spare time. In fact, one of them is transitioning to become a full-time novelist. I've interviewed her uh, twice. I interviewed a woman. This is going to come out, I think, in the next two weeks. She is a, a chef and specializes in gluten-free cooking and has her own line of gluten-free, you know, kind of breadcrumbs. Like you want to make a fried chicken and you need those breadcrumb things. Well, they have bread in them. You can't have them, but she created something so that you can go to the store and buy them and, and live a happy gluten-free life. Well, you're looking at someone who much to the chagrin of many of my neighbors and friends is gluten-free has been gluten-free for almost 20 years now. Thanks to grandma Virginia and her celiac disease. So I'm all about this this episode. I'm definitely going to have to find out where she is because I'm in a perpetual search of gluten-free baked goods, especially because it's so hard to get baked goods. But anyway, I definitely want to check her out. People are so amazing. And you we only see people on the surface of what their jobs are. No idea that outside of the, the lab, the clinic, the OR, the, the faculty meeting or in the hallway, people have amazing lives, so many interests and skills and gifts and talents. Yes. There are some serious episodes also. For example, I remember taking care of a critically ill patient. She'd had surgery. Things were going bad. Whenever the neurologist has to go in, things are already bad. But I remember 
I got to her room and there were several specialists who it just so happened had lined up and the cardiologist went in because she'd had heart failure. And then an orthopedic guy went in because she'd broken her hip. And then I went in and then the pulmonary guy came in. Then this other guy showed up and I said, you know, I said, who are you? And he was all dressed up, you know, like a doctor, but he was the uh, hospital pastor. I said, well, what are you going to do? And, um, it, it was just kind of struck me that sort of everybody has their role. And then it's like, well, well, what is a religious, a chaplain, the hospital chaplain? What what do you actually do? So I interviewed a couple of them for my channel. You know, what's your training? How do you, how do you become? And then what do you do when you walk? I mean, I know what I do, right? I have to take a history and kind of feel out the room and do an examination. And, you know, I thought that was uh, really, really uh, interesting. So the program's fun. I, oh my gosh, I love it. You reminded me, I'm a certified lay chaplain pastor at, at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago before I moved here to Baltimore. When I would go into the patient's rooms, we'd start off with, hello, I mean, I introduced myself and I'd usually say, what is your faith background? Would you like me to pray with you? Would you like to, you know, just chat about stuff? And one woman said, I'd love to sing. And I'm like, oh, oh my, what, what shall we sing? And so she's like, how about we sing Amazing Grace? And I'm like, okay. That was going to be my suggestion, actually. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, here's the thing is uh, uh, we started singing and I got through the first couple of verses. Then she's like, well, why don't you um, not sing? And then I, (laughs) why don't you listen? I said, that's a really good idea. So I was going to say chaplains can pray. Yes, maybe sometimes sing. Maybe they don't want to sing, but. That was fun. And then the that was actually funny. The the woman who was sharing her room, I said, Oh, I know what my in my next life, I'd love to come back as a singer. And she said, It's okay, dear. Everybody has a gift that's just not yours. And she was so ugly. <laughs> and I, I thought, oh my gosh, they were both bringing me up because I felt so badly that she asked me to stop singing. Well, <laughs> I think that's a great segue into our topic about getting feedback is that sometimes you have to say something that's uh, negative, right? Or at least it's not positive, right? It's not affirming. And I teach medical students and residents and uh, we, I'm asked to give feedback all the time and it can be awkward um, and uh, in fact, I got caught the other day in an awkward situation that I could have avoided and I, I didn't prepare properly. And so that's one of the tips that I wanted to share is that uh, preparation for feedback. I think the biggest thing that w- usually I start on a Monday and I have a few medical students that start and a neurology resident, maybe a psych resident, maybe somebody else, and they'll stay for one or two weeks. So I always give an orientation. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go see all the patients. We're going to do some research on their particular problems. And we're going to have feedback at the end of the week. And uh, because I'm required to give you feedback, so all of you are going to have feedback. And you are also going to tell me how this week could have been better. I said, so you don't have to criticize me personally, you know, of my style, or, but you can just put it in terms of how could this week have been better for you? Hmm. So that sort of take to depersonalize it a little bit. 
And that way they're kind of warned because the problem with feedback is you're often getting pulled into the principal's office, right? Whenever I'm going to give you some feedback, it's usually not a positive thing. Right. So if you put it on the schedule that this is going to happen, that that doesn't mean the person can relax because they know it's going to happen. That doesn't mean something negative is coming out. So the other day, a student said, oh, Dr. Willner, you have to give us our feedback. You know, what's the one thing I could do better? And uh, I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, We've been exceptionally busy that week, and I forgot that that was part of our routine. And I said, well, you could be more organized because I had noticed uh, she was going to give her presentation and she was looking for her stuff. And But it was a very casual observation. So then she said to me, well, can you be more specific? Which was fair. Uh, but frankly, I, I felt silly saying that, oh, well, you were looking for your notebook, which seemed like a normal thing. So then I was kind of lost because I, I was very embarrassed because I really didn't know what to say. But that was my impression. And probably if I had some more time, I could have found some other things. And I just said, you know, we all could be more organized. I said, I'm trying to get more organized every day. I said, you told me I had to say something. So I said something, you can work on it. But it created a huge amount of awkwardness because I hadn't thought it through. So that's the other thing you can do is, you know, think about the students and give them something that uh, isn't personal, but is constructive. Like, well, you could have researched that presentation more, or you made 73 slides. You know, you really didn't have to do that. It's more the, you know, you have to stay within the confines of the presentation, which is supposed to be two minutes. So I think scheduling the feedback session, uh, knowing what you're going to say and being able to support it. And then also opening it up for feedback to yourself. You know, as we uh, kind of mature in the business, I think it gets more and more difficult to get any constructive feedback. Oh, Dr. Willer, everything was great, you know, because you're the senior person. Right. And uh, and my colleagues are, are, I don't know if, I don't know what their motivation is, but I don't get any feedback from them unless something really, really bad happens and I'll get a phone call. But otherwise, you know, either they're too busy or they figure I know what I'm doing. But it's very hard actually to get feedback when you're sort of in a mature role. So asking for it and then just seeing what people say, you know, it's kind of interesting. Talk too much, you don't talk enough. Yeah, Andrew, what I like about about what you're saying is that we that you've developed this um, expectation is that you're creating a culture of feedback where, like you said, it's not going to be something um, that's unexpected, that's going to be punitive, that's going to be make you shouldn't make you anxious or nervous or afraid. This is the culture we have here. Like when you're working with me, this is how we do things around here. So you're setting up a culture, which is it's comforting and kind of like you're you're opening up those channels of communication. And what I also like about what you said is um, kind of lowering the temperature by saying one thing. Um, just tell me one thing I could have done better. And well, here's one thing you could do better. So you don't necessarily think, all right, I'm going to stand back here and get barraged with 22 things. So when you said like your our colleagues, yeah, my colleagues, after I, they've heard me give the same or the same-ish talk a bunch of times, they're not going to, I'm not going to ask for their feedback, but I will say one thing. They're like, well, Kim, you did it again. You talk too much. You know, you over-explain, you ask a question, and then you start talking because we know you can't stand silence. And so 
people may have said something, but then you start blabbering and I'm like, I know, I know, I know. So, you know, it's always like just one thing, one thing, one thing. So I like that it kind of takes the onus off the feedback giver and the feedback receiver if it's just one thing. So I love that, at least so far, those two things, culture, feedback, and one thing. I love it. I'm going to add something okay. uh, that I also tell them, you know, on on ex- setting expectations. So I'm a neurologist and neurologist is difficult and complicated. And particularly for a third year student uh, who may even already know they're not interested in neurology or they're not sure. Now, my residents are supposed to be interested in it, but it it's a difficult topic and it's very hard to shine. Uh, I'd say as a student in neurology, because it's vast and it's complex and it's just not something that's easy to excel at in the early uh, days. So I, I tell them about the, the three A's of success and I have, a ch- and uh, I learned these many, many years ago, they're still around. And in, in my book, the local life, I put them in a chapter about, you know, how do you have a successful uh, you know, new assignment. You're going someplace for the first time. And this applies a lot to medical residents and students because they're always on new rotations. You know, next month it's on OBGYN, next month pulmonary, next month psychiatry. It's a new set of people, might even be a different hospital. You know, how do you succeed? So the three A's. So number one, availability. It's very simple. You just show up. You be where you're supposed to be. You do what you're supposed to do. You know, Woody Allen's uh, 90% of success is showing up, right? But it's true. You know, if I look for you and you're not there, why are you not there? If you have a lecture to go to, I need to know that ahead of time. Otherwise, I'm going to give you an assignment or ask you a question. You're not there, you know, or you're the doctor's appointment. You know, you're not there. Don't take all of your doctor's appointments on your neurology rotation. You know, you need to be there. So availability. And then number two, affability. Mm-hmm. You need to be nice. You need to be easy to get along with. And uh, that that extends, I would say, to being enthusiastic. You need to really show that you are engaged and interested. And I tell them, I said, you know, I don't expect all of you to become neurologists or go into neuroanatomy, you know, get a PhD. I said, but I want you to fake it for a week (laughs) and pretend that you're really enthusiastic about neurology and see what happens, you know, because it'll make it more fun for you and more fun for me and you'll learn more. And then the last A is probably the most important, but it ends up being last. And that's ability. You're going to be a lot more comfortable in doing everything that you do if you know what you're doing. So that means studying a lot, a lot more than I see a lot of them do. You have to study a lot. You have to learn a lot because when you're able, uh, but people won't see that if you don't show up. And if you're not nice, they're not going to care if you're super smart and you know all your stuff. So you got to do those two, but then what you really have to do is learn and know what you're doing. And if you do those three A's, three A's of success, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, if you want to be an airplane pilot, you know, or a neurologist, uh, that that's going to work for you. So I give them that at the onset. So they know I'm not expecting them to be neurologists at the end of the week, but it's an attitude. I said, I'm going to judge you by your, your attitude, by what I see. 
I think that's important not only for someone who's doing like learners rotations and yourself in, in as you described in the locum life and going to different hospitals. I can see this being transferable to leaders going into new leadership positions and or new institutions and finding new new roles where, yes, there's an assumption that you are able, unless we're going to talk about the good old Peter principle, where we become promoted to our level of incompetence, but that there's some ability there. And then clearly availability, where if you're going to go to a new job, a new position, a new role, that you're going to just be there for crying out loud. But that third A, the availability, affability, ability, I like that second one, affability. I never would have thought that. I thought you were going to say accessibility. But so you got me on that. And I, I really am thinking about that and enjoying that because, like you said, when it gets down to it, everybody's smart. When we do job searches and have high-level executive searches or hiring new faculty members and these trainees will go on to be faculty members, yeah, you're in a whole, you're in a great pool of people who are very able. They have the credentials. <laughs> You've got a lot of competition there. You're available because theoretically you want the job. So you're going to show up for the job. But that affability, that personality, like you said, when we are work a lot of hours and intense, stressful situations, you don't want to work with jerks. You want to work with someone who's going to be warm, be nice, be kind, smiling, laughing, enjoying themselves. So that is so, I think we don't even talk about that enough. We talk about being super smart, being super prepared, showing up, working your butt off, but we really don't talk about, crying out loud, be somebody I want to hang out with. So I, I really think that's great advice. I have found that I, I would admit that in my uh, younger days, I did not make affability my priority it didn't come that naturally and uh, when i started working more locum tenens i just decided i'm going to try it you know just going to show up at work and just be uh, this is the greatest thing that ever happened that i've got this job here for 6 months i'm going to do my best and going to have fun and not only did uh, did i enjoy my work better with that attitude but I, I mean, it was a conscious decision. You know, I put on my my game face, but the response I got from the people that I worked with was totally unexpected. It's it turns out it's contagious. Yeah. So that was very very exciting that you could actually uh, change the change the room, if you will, and by coming in with that uh, attitude. So it's just a a good thing uh, to do. I'll add one more feedback example. That I think was it was an awkward situation, and I didn't really know what to do. I I was when I round with the residents, uh, we basically traipse through the whole hospital, this room, fifth floor, third floor, ER, everywhere, and we walk around and we get phone calls. So we're on our you know cell phone, or this note, you know, some can you come here? Can you come there? Clarify this. So one of the residents started wearing uh, a headset uh, with ear earbuds. And he'd have one earbud in the ear to uh, receive the calls. And then the other ear was open so he could talk. And I thought it was a very, very practical approach. However, I noticed that some people looked at him a little askance. 
And then I realized that it gave the impression, mm-hmm. the perception, you know, that he was listening to music, you know, and not focusing on what he was, when it was actually the opposite, that was true. He had found actually a very pragmatic solution to dealing with our work, but the white earbuds looked like something for entertainment. So I pulled them aside and I said, look, I said, I can see what you're trying to do. And I agree with it. I think it's a great idea, but I don't think you should do it because I think it's misperceived. And uh, I felt I handled that well because I wasn't criticizing him. And um, and he never wore him again when he came in the next day. I, mean, I didn't tell him not to do it. I just said, I don't think it's a good idea because it's giving the wrong impression, even though I think it's a great idea. You know, it's very practical. But he took the hint. And he didn't wear them again. So I thought by sort of, I don't know, being a little complicit and saying, I think this is a good idea and you're doing the right thing, but it's not, you know, it's just not working well in this environment. Don't do it. And and he uh, he went with it. So I, I felt good about that. I didn't have to criticize. I don't wear headphones. You look like an idiot, right? I just put it in a nice way. Well, wow, that's, now that's really interesting. Earlier you said, in your tips about, you know, how to give and receive feedback, one of the things you said, think it through, make make it um, constructive, but not personal. So you're making me think, here's this guy, like you said, trying to be efficient, trying to be smart, um, trying to be show, you know, show initiative. I'm solving problems here. And how does that not be personal? So can we go into some of these difficult you know, feedback encounters where I I agree with you. I love how you did that by acknowledging, hey, you know, Andrew, I see what you're trying to do there. That makes sense. What a great idea. Not but, because but all of a sudden I'm going to be on, you know, arms crossed. Here we go. Here comes a blow. And I'm curious. I'm wondering if you think that some people might think that that earbud means you're listening to something. I like the way you soften that. But how, what about situations where people do take this personally, where like, okay, um, I get where you're going, Dr. Wilner, but this is the way I dress, or this is just the way I talk, or I'm a close talker, or I'm a loud talker, or I'm impatient, and I, you know, we've been waiting a long time, so my voice raised. I mean, so thinking of the things, you know, where like, the awkward kind of encounters, how do you not make it personal? How I mean, is that just your, your style of kind of try to, I would say if somebody came back with something like that, I would drop it. You know, it's like, well, you're with me for two weeks. If that's the way you want to dress, it's, it's okay. (laughs) You you just do what you want to do. Let's focus on the patients. That's our priority. I'll give another example though, where I felt like I uh, was able to uh, turn it around. And and a lot of this is because I want to mention at university of Tennessee, they have a teaching excellence course. And I took it a couple of years ago and it's a nine month course. Uh, classes are just once a month and then you have a project, but the whole idea is teaching excellence. And I did my, you have to do a final kind of presentation. I did mine on feedback. So I, I did a lot of thinking about this. So there, you know, not all the resonants are stellar and there's a resident I've worked with. They're in the program for four years and I've worked with this resident before. He, uh, he's slow and he doesn't have a good knowledge base. And it's just plain old, not very good. And I was stuck with this resident in clinic. And as it turned out, 
it was a very busy day. Sometimes clinic is light. So there was a lot of patients, which makes it hard. And this resident is not very knowledgeable and not very quick. And I was starting to lose my temper because it was getting late. And we're like five patients. The nurses were all getting irritated because they like to go home sort of on this side of five o'clock. And it was already on that side of five o'clock. And uh, I just felt like sort of, you know, why are you not studying more? How come you're still having all these problems? And then I thought, what's the, what's the big picture here? About uh, exactly four years ago, I became a parent for the first time also. So I've become sort of more into, so what's the big picture here? And so finally I said to her, I said, I could see you're having some difficulty. How can I help? (laughs) And uh, she said, oh, let me think about that. And then we just proceeded and got our work done. But I was thinking, well, the point of all this, right, is for this person to, you know, get it together and graduate and do the right thing and know what they're supposed to know. And what's my role as a teacher? My role is to facilitate facilitate that. So I just processed all that and I came out with the, the least likely thing I think I wanted to say. And uh, it just kind of perked her up, I think. And it was like, oh, okay. And we just proceeded and I, I didn't personalize it in any way, right? It's just, okay, how are we going to get through this? How can I help? And it I, I, I also love that I can imagine when there is, you know, temperatures in the rooms going up, the heat's building, we can sense a lot of people are getting prickly, um, it's getting thick in here. And if that's me, if I'm the one who is the, the cause or the center of this little vortex, I would anticipate logically that you're coming at me with fists or hands like you're going to strangle me. Instead, you open those hands and said, how can I help you? And that is complete. I love, I can imagine going, whoa, instead of girding the loins, you know, getting my core tight because you're going to punch. It's coming. I'm going to get the proverbial or the literal punch and I'm going to be on defense. Instead, that humility, that grace, the mercy of how can I help you? Oh my gosh. I'm wondering how many of our anticipated difficult, crucial conversations, if we were to open those fists and turn them upward in a giving gesture of you seem really stressed out, or this is a really difficult time for us. How can I help? How can we help? How can we help each other? Just that posture, the exhale, the posture, it totally, I can imagine, lowers the temperature and people are like, ah, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. And I think that's a really good advice to remember um, to lower the hands from a punch to an open hand. How can I help? Yeah. So I wanted to share that. Mm, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, when we first started talking, I shared with you a, a coaching conversation I had with a faculty member who was anticipating going into a, a kind of a dicey situation and she was planning um, what she was going to say and why that was important and what the situation had to have. What was the situation? What was the problem? What were the solutions? What were the responses? And I, and I said, I shared with you that she said, but what I'm nervous about give, giving this feedback to this, this guy in the operating room is 
I don't know what he's going to say to me. I'm anticipating if he says A, then I can rebut with this. If he says B, then I can come up with that. If he says C, so she was like trying to mentally rehearse and prepare for all the possible zingers he's going to throw back to her. And I love what you said then. And, and do you remember what you said to me? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I said, it doesn't matter what he says. Yeah, and, and I was uh, just like, what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So I was exaggerating a little bit. I mean, of course, of course it matters, but in, in the big picture, it doesn't matter, right? Life's going to go on. You know, you're the, you're going to still get paid that day. You're going to go home to your family and you don't have to respond and you don't have to respond right away. So if you take that sort of uh, stance that whatever he says, you know, he may make some snide remark or he might compliment you or blow you off. It's like, that's okay. You can let it ride, you know, think about it. Say, uh, you know, I heard what you said. Why don't we continue this discussion, you know, at some future date, you know, and just make it all go away because that's not what you're there for. Right. You're there to help that patient in the operating room. That's what I tell my students, actually, in the orientation. Number one, you're here for patient care. Number two, you're here to learn. And number three, you're here to get home on time. That's kind of (laughs) and and that's our priority list. And we're going to if ever you don't know what you should do, you should be taking care of the patient. After that, learn. And then we have to make the work (laughs) compressed so that we can all go home when we're supposed to go home. And uh, so, you know, the other things, they don't matter that much. And they feel like they matter. You are so they feel like they matter, but (laughs) I I I love it. So Andrew Wilner, are you telling me that just because someone rings my doorbell, I don't have to answer it? Or just because someone sends me an email, I don't have to respond immediately? Or just because someone said something or asked me a question, I don't have to answer it immediately? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, in terms of email, I have a pet peeve there respond to the email right away. That's what I do. I respond to every email and say, I got your email. Thank you very much. Let me reflect on this. I'll get back to you. Mm. And that way, that person knows they've communicated. You communicate. Probably they were in a a fit and you're never going to answer and they're never going to remind you and it'll all just go away. Or if it doesn't go away, you'll have time to think about it and make your, your best response. So give a response. I heard you. Thanks for your email. I'll get back to you. It takes two seconds. And I like the idea. This is such a relief to me to think of in an an uncomfortable conversation, something difficult. We can remind ourselves, you're not under any obligation to solve this thing, to win this dispute, to do anything right now other than Take care of that patient or whatever the fill in the patient, the lab rat, the mouse, the grant, the paper. Take care of that thing. Learn something and then go home and and attend to your your well-being. I think that is such a relief to me because I think many of us feel like, you mean I can just get up and walk away? We don't have to like fight this to the death? No, you could actually take a pause and say, I heard you. Well, to be continued. Wow, what a concept. What a concept. Uh, part of it might be wisdom of years, uh, <laughs> but less less eager to jump into the fray. But yeah, you don't always have to. Yeah. And I think that, like you're saying with wisdom, that, that is probably the hallmark of, a. I bet you, the best leaders who don't let their emotions run 
and make um, flippant responses and and know when their own temperature is rising and aware that, wait a minute, this is getting um, a field. So I'm going to step back and we're going to to be continue this versus, all right, boxing gloves, game on, here we go. And which is rarely going to end well, because now once you put on the gloves, something is going to be said, something will be misinterpreted, something, someone will see something, overhear something uncomfortable. Now you've got a whole situation versus saying perhaps what you wanted to say, having another, a response, acknowledging it. Okay, Andrew, I, I heard what you said, Dr. Wilner. And then shall we continue? Letting that sit there versus engaging in a full out uh, confrontation is, and I'm sure there are situations where that has to happen, no doubt. But every time I'm coaching someone, I hear that this happens and things go far left field. It's because people are tired, they're stressed, they're impatient, they're angry, they're letting their emotions override that that lizard brain takes over because we're all on real fast, you know, move, 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 move. One other thing I learned in my uh, teaching excellence course that I be- sort of brought it into my conscious mind that we all know, but when you're a teacher, you're a professor, that you're a role model. And, but it, it's not necessarily that abstract. So that everyone, you know, on my team is watching me. If I'm talking, they're watching how am I treating the person that I'm talking to? You know, if it's a technician or somebody did something dumb, they're watching to see how I handled it. So the self-awareness that you are kind of on TV all the time and that people are not just listening to you when you're teaching, like when we're talking about the patient in a formal setting, but they're watching you when you're going up and down the steps and how you, you know, handle yourself and whether you wash your hands or not before you go into the patient room, that they're paying a lot of attention to little things that that you're not paying attention to <laughs> because, you know, they're not that important to you. You know what you're doing, but but people are watching you. So I found that helpful to me that sometimes I would modify my behavior in an interaction that I might be a little more patient or take a little more time than I otherwise would have been because there are these impressionable uh, minds uh, kind of looking, uh, watching me. So I think that's useful to have some self-awareness that the other part of that is uh, I think some students and residents find that I'm intimidating and that never dawned on me that I would be intimidating, but you know, I'm a tall, white, gray haired male in a white coat. And some people find that intimidating. But it never dawned on me that I was intimidating. And then I think somebody mentioned that. And I said, why would you think I was intimidating? But, you know, I'm looking at me from in the mirror, not from, you know, 40 years ago when I was a student. So that's something to keep in mind, that you might be more intimidating than you realize. You're the professor. You're the one who's in charge, even though you may not feel very in charge that day. But uh so uh, I think there's a lot to be learned by some uh, introspection into the the teaching feedback thing. And, and that's so important, Andrew, because 
we always teach that as leaders, people are taking your temperature all day long. They are watching you. They are watching the, the eyebrow raise, the rolling of the eyes, the harumphs, the kind of, uh. and so I, I find myself a lot of times when I'm doing email, for example, during the day, and I want to fire off real kind of get them off, off my, let that ball bounce one and once and hit it right over the net. So I want to do really quick emails and I will, I will stop and I'll go, okay, Kim, if the Dean gets this email, what would he perceive the tone of this is? So it's the same thing. Like people, is this, um, befitting? Is this tone of voice, pace of voice, language, all that stuff? Is that fitting of someone in this position? And I, and so I like how you point out that emotional intelligence of being aware of who am I in someone else's eyes and that sensitivity to, well, I didn't mean that. That was not my intention. Well, nevertheless, that was the impact of it. So I, that's why I think it's so good as leaders that we always invite the feedback from others, which is what you obviously do in that, in your waltz of feedback, you, it's a, it's a you know, bi-directional uh, arrow there. I think that's so important that we get so accustomed to being a certain way. And it's good for us to have our inner circle reminding us, eh, Kim, you're doing that thing again, or I can tell you're tired, or I can tell, you know, remember going to that that meeting, that's the one student who, or that's that colleague who, who drives you, you know, nuts. Make sure you've got some some something in your your toolkit to allow you to work through that inevitable crunchiness. So I like that heightened awareness of preparing ourselves. And all that comes down to what taking the time, right? That instead of flying through life, slowing down, reminding ourselves, this is, yeah, this is not the end of the world. Take, take our time. That's where I get the trouble. I think a lot of us is when we're just, we're tired, we're hungry. It's the whole basic fundamentals of life, right? We're not, uh, we're not sleeping. We're not eating. We're not drinking. We're and then we're going to snap. And that's where we have that breakdown in communication and feedback. Well, this is great. Um, anything else, Andrew Wilner? Uh, this has been really good feedback. I love the, I love your how to give and receive feedback painlessly. This feels very painless to me. Um, I'm especially appreciative of your reminding me to how can I help? And that being, um, very self-aware scheduling it, preparing for it, thinking about it, being constructive. Anything else you'd like to share with us before we conclude this session? I think the only other thought I have is that when you're dealing with somebody who's being difficult or incompetent in your eyes, somehow is fairly frequent occurrence, right? For everybody. <laughs> if you say to yourself, I think they're actually doing their best, Ooh. I think they're trying their best, mm. and, which is often the case. Then all of a sudden that creates a little empathy on on you, on my side anyway. It's like, oh, this person is not doing what I want them to do. But they're actually trying hard. They're doing the best they can. Yeah. And uh, then uh, it, I think it, it, you can be much more constructive. I've even resorted to saying that myself when somebody's asked me to do something that I cannot do for one reason or another. I say, look, I'm doing the best I can. And uh, I think we often feel that uh, you know people aren't doing their best because you should be able to do better. But if you say they're, they are actually doing their best, you can't expect any more than their best and they're doing their best. Well, then you become sympathetic. Then you want to help them, right. to strangle them. So uh, <laughs> you know, it, it changes the 
the mood a little bit. So I find that also is a, a helpful uh, trick to pull out of your pocket when you're starting to get aggravated. I love that assumption, going in with the assumption of someone is doing their best and how can I help versus offensive, they're slacker, they're they're being lazy, they're purposely trying to annoy me. Um, it, there's a, a grudge they've got here. And instead of personalizing it to me, being a little bit more merciful, they're doing their best. My job here is to help to help facilitate learning, to get everybody to go home and to take care of our mission right now, which is this patient, this experiment, this grant, this paper, this this meeting. I'll mention that on on my channel, The Art of Medicine with Dr. Andrew Wilner, I've interviewed at least two, if not more, uh, physician coaches who uh, coach physicians. You know, being a physician can be very challenging, again, mostly because you run out of time for work and family and investing and, you know, relatives <laughs> and all the things you got to do. And uh, it's helpful to sort of take stock and whether that's with a, a coach or you can do it on your own, but a lot of it is taking stock and looking for strategies. And uh, I think we all struggle and there are physician coaches. And of course, I, I think you mentioned earlier, you do some coaching, executive yeah. coaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have at least one author who, who's a business uh, coach. She's a university professor and she just published a book. I want you to make sure you check out The Locum Life. That sounds fascinating. I'm going to do it. And his podcast, The Art of Medicine, every other Sunday, Dr. Andrew Wilner. You can contact him at A-W-I-L-N-E-R at U-T-H-S-C. U-T-H-S-C stands for the University of Tennessee Health Science Center edu. Did you find it, Andrew? Yes, I did. Uh, okay. Michelle Johnston, PhD, wrote The Seismic Shift in Leadership. And I think she's in uh, Louisiana somewhere. And then Ruth Gotian, who has a doctorate in education, wrote one called The Success Factor. And both of those books are, are very similar in that they look at successful people, successful business people, hospital administrators, you know, what do they have in common? What do they do? What can you learn from them? So there's a, those are episodes 53 and 55. Uh, and those that's on YouTube. You can watch the channel on YouTube if you like watching uh, two heads talk to each other, or you can listen on your uh, podcast uh, player. The success factor and the sensitive shift in leadership. Seismic. Seismic, seismic shift in seismic. leadership. Probably. And that actually refers to the what uh, Dr. Johnston referred to as, you know, in the old days, the leader would tell everybody what to do. In the new days, the leader looks more for commonality and consensus and buy-in and that successful leaders in 2022 uh, do it differently. That was her thesis. Got um, it. And she might Great. be right. Okay, folks, you got to check it out. You heard it from Dr. Andrew Wilner. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Andrew. You've taught me a lot. I'm so happy to be um, learning from you and getting some new techniques and skills. And I know everyone else in the Faculty Factory podcast world um, is equally happy. We'll be listening over and over and over again to this podcast. If anything, for your melodious voice. I have to practice oh, voice. Like that's, I think that's all I'll burden you with today. It's been ah, a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. See you next time on the podcast. Thank you, Andrew.
Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.